Well, good morning, church. So good to see each of you this morning. Hey, if you have a Bible with you, open up to Numbers chapter 20. And if not, you can read along on the screens with us this morning. Uh, we are continuing our series called Dwell. We are looking through the books of Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy uh, in the Old Testament and seeing how God chooses to dwell among his people. And he desires to dwell with us forever as his people. So we're going to dig right into that uh, in just a minute. But first, let me pray and ask the Lord to bless his word as we receive it this morning. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you and we thank you for this amazing time of worship where you have focused our hearts and our minds on who you are, on your blood that has been sacrificed for us. So Lord God, we pray that you would have your way amongst us today, that you would speak to us now through your word. Jesus, that your name would be glorified and magnified in our lives as we think about how we respond to your word. And Holy Spirit, that you would truly speak deep into the dark places of our hearts this morning, transform who we are, change how we think about you, ourselves, our neighbors, this world. Lord, help us in this way. Help us to believe. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, you know, there's basically just two kinds of people in the world. Those who drive right out of the drive through without checking the bag to make sure that everything's in there. And those of us who hold up the line very awkwardly behind us while we have to dig through the bag and make sure that every single French fry is in there, right? Not going to tell you which one I am, but let's just say there's probably some angry people behind me in the drive-thrus. Now, the reason for that is most of us are more trusting uh, towards others, right? Most of us, are, or some of us, I should say, some of us are more trusting than others. Uh, now, to be fair, to be fair, I do think it probably matters uh, which drive-thru you are in, right? So Chick-fil-A is like, oh, they got it. I'm good. I don't even have to look, right? You may want to check in some other drive through though, right? It's probably a good, good choice. Um, but when it comes to fast food, uh, maybe there's good reason not to believe that you, they got your order right every single time. But for a lot of us, and I think, I think this is true, I think for a lot of us, we kind of treat God like that. You're like, what do you mean? Well, it's like maybe we don't believe, maybe we don't fully trust that God is getting it right, that he has really got everything in our lives, so to speak, in the bag, so to speak, that he's really got everything in there that we need and that's going to benefit us and that we expected, that we want. We don't believe he's getting everything right. So what do we do often is we check behind him, so to speak, or we make sure that things are going the way we think they should go and we kind of take over. Now, I'm going to come back to that illustration in a minute, but what we see now as we look at Numbers chapter 20, now if you've been following along, if you've been coming on Sundays, you know that we've been looking week after week in the book of Numbers now at story after story of God's people just failing miserably, failing to trust, failing to believe that God is getting it right for them. So now, in Numbers 20, we move forward to the end of Israel's 40 years of wandering in the desert. So a couple of weeks ago, we saw where they rebelled against God, 
he wanted them to go into the land he promised for them, but they didn't want to go. They were afraid and a whole host of other reasons, and they didn't do it. They disobeyed. They rebelled against God. They rebelled against Moses. So God sentenced them to 40 years of wandering around a desert. That was their punishment. And beyond that, everyone 20 years old and older was going to die in the desert. They would not be allowed to enter into his good land that he was going to give them. So now we're fast-forwarding in Numbers 20 to the end of that period. All right, so this story today takes place in the first month of that 40th year. All right, so let's dig right in. Numbers chapter 20, verse 2. What's going to happen to God's people this time? All right, verse 2. Now there was no water for the congregation. And they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. All right, let's stop right there. Now, the people, again, they come to a very real crisis, right? There's no water, and that's a big deal because they're in the middle of a desert with possibly around 2 million people. That's about how many people we think were with them at the time. And a bunch of cows and sheep and goats. I mean, I'm talking like a lot, you know what I mean? And so this, they've got to keep all these people alive. They have to keep all these animals alive. And so, now you got to remember, it's their own fault, right? It's their own fault that they are in this predicament to begin with, that they're wandering around this wilderness. However, this is a real crisis. It's a very real issue, and they are still God's people. So what do they do? They do what they do best. They complain. (laughs) They complain to Moses and Aaron again. Look at verse 3. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. This is probably referencing what we saw last week. Remember when the ground opened up and swallowed up Korah and the rebellion, right? They're thinking, well, that would have been better than dehydration out here, right? Verse 4. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink, right? That's what they're mad about. That's what they're experiencing. They think this is it. This is the end this time for real. They are all going to die of dehydration. Now, again, let's give some validity here. The problem is real. That's a big deal. They are in the middle of a desert, and there's no water. But what is the big missing component here? There's no turning to God here at all, right? There's no turning to God to say, Lord, help us. No, what do they do? They cry cry out not to God, but to Moses and Aaron, and they start blame shifting. That's exactly what they're doing. Instead of owning up to the fact that it's their own fault that they are in this predicament in the first place, instead of admitting, right, to God and others that, you know what, maybe we should humble ourselves here. Maybe we should say, God, we know that it's our own fault that we're in this position, but we need water. Would you provide for us? Would you help us? They blame Moses and Aaron instead. Verse 6, then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. You see this is becoming repetitious, right? That the people complain, Moses and Aaron fall on their face. In other words, they go to the Lord in prayer and the glory of the Lord appeared to them 
And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. So Moses and Aaron respond correctly to this crisis by going to the Lord. Right? They didn't argue back. They went to the Lord for guidance and direction and help. God is going to graciously provide for his people here. But notice, this is very important to this story, notice what God actually commands Moses to do. He tells Moses to tell or speak to the rock. That's all, right? Just speak to this rock and sit back and watch God's power on display. Not Moses' power, not the people's power, but just speak to this rock and God is going to do something amazing and miraculous. God wants the people to clearly see his unmistakable power and provision here. Verse 10. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Here now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? Now, (laughs) I read it like that because here's the deal. You can hear the frustration in Moses' voice. He's done. Like, he's tired of it. He is done with these people. He says, you rebels, right? He just takes the opportunity to essentially yell at them in anger. He's basically saying, I am sick and tired of hearing you grumble and complain constantly. Enough of this, right? And then what does he do? He loses his temper, verse 11. And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and their livestock. So Moses, in his anger, and in his frustration, what does he do? He takes that staff, and he hits this rock in anger, not just once, but twice, in front of everybody. This is a public display of anger. Now, God brings water. He brings miraculous water out of this rock that was struck and he brings it abundantly so that the people will not die. So God provides here. But this is not the way he intended it to go. This is not the way he wanted everyone to see it happen. Moses deliberately and publicly disobeys God by striking the rock in anger instead of speaking to the rock in faith. Now Moses has been a great leader up until this point, and this is sad to see such a public downfall in front of everyone, such a public display of not just anger but unbelief. 
that in this moment, Moses does not believe that God is really going to do what he said he would do, and he takes matters into his own hands. And Moses is not above accountability. He and Aaron will be held liable for their actions, and the Lord tells them why. Look at verse 12. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me? Now no, that's the reason, right? Because you did not believe. You just didn't believe, Moses, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. This is devastating. I mean, it really is. Like, this is devastating for Moses because this is sad to watch. After all he's been through, born a little baby, rescued from the Nile River, up, uh, grew up in Egypt, then chosen by God to lead his people out of slavery. After all these years of leading these people faithfully, boy, he really messes up here at the end, doesn't he? Moses and Aaron receive the same sentencing, and this is fair. Moses and Aaron receive the same sentencing as the rest of the people from about 38 years prior to this episode because they're doing the same thing. They're not believing. They're not trusting, and they're taking matters into their own hand. That generation 38 years before would not enter this promised land because of their unbelief and their disobedience. And now Moses, because of his unbelief and his disobedience, is going to get the same penalty for the same thing. So Moses will not, the great Moses, he will not be the one to lead God's people into the promised land. This clearly shows us that Moses is not a perfect leader. He fails to trust the word of God. And I just want us to try to picture this scene a little more vividly. If you can, just, a Moses, just, imagine, just imagine Moses and Aaron gather everyone together in, in front of this massive rock in the desert. And I can just imagine him walking up to this rock and standing in front of everyone as they waited quietly with anticipation to see what's going to happen. And so as Moses is standing there holding his staff with everyone just looking at him, waiting, and in that quiet moment, he has a choice. He has a choice as frustrated as he is, as angry as he is, as real as this crisis before them is, in that moment, Moses still has a choice. He can simply trust and obey God and rely on his word to be the power that saves people from their death, or, or he can totally hijack the situation and essentially make it all about himself. And unfortunately, he does the latter. He just makes it all about himself by turning it around on the people. But at the root, at the root of Moses' disobedience is the problem of unbelief. God clearly states that this is the problem with Moses' heart in verse 12. Look at it again. 
And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe. And you didn't uphold me as holy in front of everyone. So for some clarification, I really like how the NIV Theological Study Bible defined this. It says, to disobey is to disbelieve. Now just chew on that for a second. To disobey is to disbelieve. Now, none of us would verbally say that we do not believe God is in control. Now, I say none of us, most likely. Most likely, if you've been following the Lord for some time, you would probably not verbally say, I don't believe God is really in control, right? Or I I don't believe that God has my best interest in mind, right? Most of us would not articulate that verbally in front of anyone else. We'd be ashamed to do that, right? But as the NIV Bible points out, to disobey is to disbelieve. So with our actions, even though verbally we may not say this, our actions speak this all the time. When we choose something else in our lives to give us life, to give us security, to give us approval and acceptance and love, when we choose and look to anything else besides God himself and we follow that in disobedience somehow to his word, that is essentially us saying with our mouths, I don't believe God got it right. I don't believe he heard my order and what I wanted and he gave me something that I didn't want. The NIV Bible, study Bible says also to honor God To honor God as holy is to acknowledge the Lord's greatness through obedience. Let me say that again. To honor God as holy is to acknowledge the Lord's greatness through obedience. So when we disobey God, we're essentially saying, I don't believe he's good enough. But but the opposite is true, right? When we do obey God in the middle of even the worst circumstances in our lives, it is a way of saying to others that we believe. We may not have it all figured out, but we know that God does. And so it acknowledges his greatness as we obey. I don't think Moses is the only one that gets confused about this. I don't think he's the only one with this problem. In seasons of difficulty in our lives or moments of just sheer frustration like Moses, we have the choice. You always have the choice to either humbly trust the word of God And really believe that God will work things out for his glory in your circumstances. Even if you can't see it and you don't understand it, you still have that belief. Or, or, like Moses, we can just try to take matters into our own hands. We can get angry and lash out at people or lash out at God. Or just try to manipulate things and try to have a sense of control so that we feel like we can believe in ourselves. But ultimately, it's unbelief in God. So, as we think about this story, I have three questions today I want us to ask ourselves. Three questions to kind of help us piece this together. All right, the first one is this. Why do we struggle to believe God's word? Or you could phrase it this way. Why do we fail to take God at his word? Why do we struggle with this? Why do we really have a hard time believing that what God has said, his good promises are enough for us Why is it so hard for us to believe in the moment that what God has said is true is true now? You know, we do that sometimes, don't we? What I mean is sometimes we believe what God said is true as long as it aligns neatly with the way our lives are going and the way we think they should. 
But other times when we don't think our lives are going the way we think they should, well, then it's, well, maybe God doesn't know what he's doing, right? It's just so hypocritical of us. It's wishy-washy. Why is it so hard for us to believe in every moment, Romans 8, 28, that God really does work all things together for good? Why is it so hard for us to believe, Hebrews 13, 5, that God will never leave us, never leave you, nor forsake you? Why is it so hard for us to believe, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, that says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why do we struggle with that? Why is it so hard for us to believe, Romans 8, 38, that we can stare, that we can stare even our own death in the face and not be afraid? Because nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing. Why is it so hard for us to believe these great and wonderful promises and truths of God's word. One reason, I think, the first is because of external influences. In other words, things that are happening around us that may tempt us to not believe. Now, this was true for Moses, right? I mean, his circumstances were not good. His circumstances were ripe for a burst of anger, you know? Like, his circumstances were ripe for him to just lash out in frustration and bitterness towards the people and unbelief. We see Moses was a weak human. He was a weak human in a moment of real difficulty. But hey, I mean, anybody been there before? Have you ever been just in a season of difficulty? Or even just a moment, just a quick moment of frustration and you just lash out at your spouse or you lash out at your kids or your coworker and you just kind of make a fool of yourself? That's exactly what Moses did here. He's a weak person in a moment of weakness and real difficulty, but this doesn't justify his actions. You know, Paul speaks of these kinds of things in 1 Corinthians 10. Specifically, he's referring to the episodes we've been reading about uh, in Leviticus and Numbers. And look what he says here. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, verse 11, Now these things happen to them, in other words, to the Israelites, in these stories we've been, we've been reading, that's what he's referencing. These things have happened to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction, the New Testament church, us, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So, so it would have been, let, let's take 1 Corinthians 10 and just dump it on the context of Moses, right? When he's standing there and everybody, the whole congregation is looking at him and waiting to see what's he, what is he going to do, right? And they probably don't know what God told him, right? But what they do know is that he's losing his temper, so he has, a, moment, he has a, cho a choice in that moment to do the right thing, but he doesn't. And it would be easy for him to justify it in that moment because of how bad everything else is around him, because of his external influences. Boy, we do that, though, don't we? Well, you know, um, you know we, we do these half apologies to our spouses, right? Listen, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I raised my voice, or I'm sorry I said what I did. I'm sorry I called you that name or whatever, right? But then what do we do? You know, I'm sorry, but... <laughs> But, 
you did this and you did that and I've been tired and I'm, I've been working hard and blah, 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 right? And so it's just, it's all, it's all mess. It's just, it's not real. It's just this imaginary thing we've produced in our minds to justify, right? To justify our, our actions. Listen, on the flip side of that though, you may legitimately be in the middle of some real difficulty in your life right now. And I know that might be true for many of us in this room. You may, for real, be experiencing a serious crisis similar on the scale of what the Israelites were facing. And I'm not talking about a water crisis. I'm talking about a spiritual crisis. There's something going on in your life right now. There's a problem at work. There's a problem at home. There's a problem with some friends. And it's a real crisis to you right now. And you have the choice. You can start looking at all the problems and blame them just like the Israelites did, just like Moses did, and you can act out of anger, you can act out of frustration, or in the quietness of the moment, you can make the choice to trust, to believe. But like Moses, we still have this choice, whether people are watching or not. Now, his sin was very public, yours may be private, but you still have a choice to obey in faith or believe. Believe God is working this together somehow. Or we can frustratingly take the will and sinfully steer into another direction that we think is better. So it's very clear, external influences can really make us struggle to believe God's word, to take him at his word, but also this, and you guessed it, internal, right? Internal influences also make us struggle to believe God's word, take him at his word. Now, let's go back to the fast food analogy, all right? Maybe I'm just hungry. All right, maybe the problem, think about it, Maybe the problem with this whole fast food analogy is it's, it's not as much the world around us, right, as it is our approach to God. So, spoiler, the whole analogy is bad. We should not think of God working in a drive through right, to just give us what we order, right? The problem is that a lot of us are treating our relationship with God the same way as we do the drive through window. We expect to just pull up to this good menu of possibilities that God has given us. And so we choose and order the way we want our life to go, and then we get up to the window, and we better expect it to be right, right? And if it's not, we're going to hold up everybody behind us, and they're going to start honking, and we're going to lash out in anger, and we're going to talk to God about it and say, you're fired, right? That's exactly what we're going to do. But when he does does give us something we didn't expect, when he gives us something we didn't want, you see, that's the thing about this. He knows what we need. He knows what's good for us. Because there's an end goal. It's not arbitrary. It's not random. The Lord is sanctifying his people and shaping us into the people we need to be to live with him forever. But at the root of this, the root of us thinking as God being this drive-through person that just gives us what we want, the root of that approach to God is, again, unbelief. Because deep down, we're just not convinced. And like I said earlier, you probably wouldn't say it out loud, but deep down in your heart, you're just not really convinced that God knows what he's doing in your life or that he has your best interest in mind. So what do we do? We try to take matters into our own hands. We struggle. This is why we struggle to believe God's word, just to take him at his word. There's a second question, though. How should we respond to our own unbelief? 
So in the midst of these external influences, the midst of our own unbelief inside our own heart, our approach to God may be wrong. How do we respond to our own unbelief? Well, the first thing we need to do is identify it through prayer. Right? The first step is admitting you're wrong. Right? So identify this problem through prayer. You see, belief, what you believe, actually drives your behavior. So disbelief is really what drives disobedience to God in our daily lives. Now remember the quote I said earlier, to disobey is to disbelieve. In other words, when we act against God's will or against his clear commands and word in the scriptures, right? When we act against God, we are saying, I don't believe. That's exactly what we're saying, whether we want to admit that or not. So we can know where we are struggling with belief by looking at our sinful patterns of behavior. So let's try to crystallize this a little bit here. In what situation, in what situation or with whom are you quick to be angry? Like just answer that self to yourself, not necessarily out loud. <laughs> but just think right now in this moment, in what situations are you quick to be angry? Maybe it's daily towards the end of the night, towards the beginning of the day, during a meeting at work, right? What, where are you quick to be angry? With whom are you quick to be angry? What about this? Why am I stingy with my finances? Now the season of giving is coming up, okay? But why am I stingy, right? Why, ask yourself, what is it and where am I saying I'm not going to be generous? What about this? Why am I not serving in the church? Why am I not serving somehow other people in this body of Christ, in this family of God, through prayer, through serving on one of our serve teams, or just being friendly and greeting people, or maybe even just helping your community group leader set up the room and make some coffee or whatever it is? Why am I not serving somehow other people? Am I only coming to be fed myself? What about this? Are you failing to trust God with his timing? So you want something, but you want it now, or perhaps there's something you don't want and you're getting it now. Either way, you're saying God's timing isn't right here. You see, all of these actionable sins, these are real things where we're not believing, they're pointing to this deeper unbelief in our hearts. Wherever you see signs of sin and disobedience in your life, there is for sure, 100%, every time, a deeper problem that is lurking beneath the surface in your heart, and it is simply unbelief. It is lack of trust. You're not believing that God is enough right now in those moments we just described or we just asked those diagnostic questions and whichever one applies to you, that is it. That's it. That is where you're not believing. And so we must identify these through prayer and confess them to the Lord. We must do some analysis and self-reflection through honest prayer with God and just ask him to reveal these areas of unbelief in our lives right now to show us where we're not living according to his word because we're not believing and just confess and cry out to God, not cry out to someone else, not blame shift our circumstances like the people did or like Moses did, but no, go straight to the Lord and say, God, it is my fault that I'm not believing and my fault alone. Would you eradicate this out of my life? And that leads to the second sub point here to repent. 
How should we respond to our own unbelief? Well, identify it through prayer. But secondly, repent and repent quickly. Like, don't put this off. Don't say, oh, you know, I know I'll overcome, I'll overcome this eventually. No, just do it now. Do it now. Like Moses experienced, we may, we may have to experience consequences sometimes to our sinful actions and unbelief. That may well be the case. But what we must do is turn away from these sins, turn away from these patterns of lashing out or the anger or the frustration or the manipulation or the discontentment, whatever it is that the root of all of that is unbelief. We must turn away from these things. We must confess them to the Lord and turn to him for our joy, for our love, for our peace, for our destination, for our security, for everything. Once we've talked to God openly, and candidly about these things, that should prompt our heart to turn to him for those things, for the good things of life. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10, Paul said, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And this leads to our final point, our final question, where the real power and the real key to believing and obeying God's word is found. Look at this, question number three. We know we struggle. We know we struggle to take God at his word, right? We know we must identify the problem. We must repent of this. All right, now what are we gonna do different next time? If you know that you haven't, you're having this, this season of unbelief in your heart and your mind right now, these patterns of sin are in your life, you see it, you're confessing, you're repenting. What do you do different? Like next time, what are you going to do differently moving forward? You know, sometimes at the end of someone's life, they may look back and reflect, and hindsight may really be 2020 when we can see the problems that we created ourselves, the things we did to hurt God, to hurt others. Moses kind of articulates this in the book of Deuteronomy, and we're not there yet. And I'm excited to preach some sermons out of Deuteronomy after we get through numbers here in a couple of weeks. But essentially, the book of Deuteronomy is Moses kind of preaching, kind of remembering some sermons that he spoke to the Israelites and about his life and the things he learned. And look at this. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, look at what he says. What should we do differently moving forward? And you shall remember... And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And then he says down in verse 11, look at this. Moses with insight that he just didn't have earlier, but he's learned these lessons. He has seen through his own experiences how God has worked in his life and it's changed his way, the way he thinks. In other words, it's changed his belief. 
He's believing now that through all those things that happened to him and the Israelites over these last 40 years that God was doing something. And he was doing something good. And look at this, verse 11. He tells the people, so listen to this then. Take care. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes which I command you today lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied then your heart be lifted up and you forget. And you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. Who brought you water out of the flinty rock? Who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. Moses says, no. No, you shall remember the Lord your God. For it is he who gives you power to get wealth to get the things you need in life, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. So what should we do differently moving forward? We know that we struggle to believe. We know the external influences around us are hard. We know that the internal influences are really ugly sometimes in our own hearts. And we know that we can confess these sins to the Lord, that he will forgive us. But what have we learned? Moses says he's learned one big thing. Remember. How quick are we to forget? How quick are we to forget God's goodness in our lives? How quick are we to just focus our attention on some little problem or some little discomfort and it just throws us for a loop emotionally, sometimes relationally, socially. It's because we're looking down and we're not looking up. We're not looking at all the blessings that God has given us. Life, family, friends, but most of all, salvation. That God has given us everything. Literally, everything. And everything is waiting for you in heaven to live with him forever. Where you will rule and reign with God over this earth, with him on this earth, as his people. We forget, though. We just forget all the time what the most important thing to remember is. And that's why in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul reminds us, he says, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea 
and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. But listen to this. For they drank from the spiritual rock, capital R, that followed them. And the rock was Christ. You see, in our crisis of spiritual thirst, our separation, in our separation from God because of our own choosing of unbelief, saying, Lord, I don't think that you know what you are doing. I'm going to just somehow save myself and quench my own thirst. In our choosing to disbelieve Christ, the rock of our salvation, was struck for our iniquities. And this is how he provides the living water abundantly for us to drink so that we will not die. Jesus is the rock who was struck, whom the living water comes from and flows forever and says, drink from this well and you will never thirst again. Believe in this good eternal life and you will never die. Jesus, the word of God, is struck instead of us. We should be the one that took the wrath of God because of our own rebellion against him, because of our own lack of belief, our disbelief in him. But Jesus stepped in front of you and he took the rod, he took the staff in your place. And in exchange, we get to drink from his goodness We get to rule and reign with him forever. Death is defeated. It really is. We can stare death in the face and not be afraid. We can stare any circumstance in the face and not be afraid. Not because, like Moses warned us, not because, oh, it's my power, it's my strength. No, because Jesus has already conquered. He is victorious, always and forever. And if we are found in him, what do we have to be afraid of? But the bottom line is, We do struggle. We do still struggle. Even though we know these truths, the external influences, the internal influences are real. The crisis for you right now may be real. Before we close, I want to share one more snippet of a story from the New Testament in Mark chapter 9. And this won't be on the screen. I'll just read it to you. It's just a couple of verses, but listen to this. There was a man, there was a man whose little boy was demon-possessed. And it was causing problems ever since his childhood. And he didn't know what to do. But he turned to Jesus for help. Listen to what he says. He tells Jesus, It has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But he turns to Jesus and he says, But if you can do anything, Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can... If you can, he says, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. Those words have always meant a lot to me. I believe, help my unbelief, because I feel like I think this was included, this story was included in the New Testament in, Mark, in Mark's gospel 
to help us understand that we're not alone. That where in your life today would you say, Lord, I am in the middle of this real crisis like this father with his son and he didn't know what to do, but he says, Lord, I do believe, but yet I know there is unbelief still in my heart. He humbly admits and confesses to God, to Jesus standing in front of his face. He humbly admits and says, I know that I'm struggling right now with unbelief that you will really do this. But I'm coming to you. I'm coming to you, Lord. And I'm admitting that I can't do it. I've tried. I've tried so many things to fix this problem. I've tried so many ways and steered this in so many different directions. But Jesus, I just humbly come before you and say, I believe but would you help my unbelief? Because I know it's there. And so my question for you today is, where do you need to just fall before the Lord and say, I believe, Jesus, help my unbelief. I believe, Lord, that you have put me in this church. I believe that you've put me in the family that I have. I believe that you've put me in this city in the year 2023 right now with the job that I have for this purpose, for a reason. I know there's a reason. I know there's a purpose, Lord. I believe these things, but I have unbelief right now that some things are just not going the way I would want them to go or that you could make them go. Jesus, cure my unbelief. Give me a heart of faith and trust.